This is hell. Hello, listeners. Speaking to you from Second Story Studios above Carrie's Lounge at 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, I'm Will Ippen, producer at This Is Hell. As Chuck announced last week, we're taking a week off from new interviews while Chuck recovers from wisdom tooth removal surgery. Hell of a way to spend your birthday. Uh, but we have a good set of shows lined up for you this week nonetheless. Coming up. Continuing a sort of theme that's fallen into place this week, uh, we have a couple of interviews dealing with modern feminism from a couple of different perspectives. First up, our January 27th, 2018 interview with journalist Sarah Sunshine Manning, who discusses the politics of indigenous feminism, both inside today's women's movement and the longer historical force in resistance to settler colonialism and environmental destruction as well as calls on social movements to recognize, respect, and listen to voices of Native American women. Sarah Sunshine Manning is an independent journalist and citizen of the Shoshone Paiute tribes of the Duck Valley Indian Reservation in Idaho and Nevada. Sarah wrote the article, No Indigenous Women, No Women's Movement, for Truth Dig. Then after that interview, uh, we'll hear from Andy Zeisler, who joined Chuck on May 21st, 2016, to discuss her piece, We Were Feminists Once, From Riot Girl to Cover Girl, The Buying and Selling of a Political Movement from Public Affairs. Andy Zeisler explores 50 years of tension between feminism and capitalism in popular culture, and explains how mass media has adapted and amplified the language of empowerment, but in a depoliticized form in service of selling products. She also discusses why she's hopeful that a young generation of connected girls and women can reclaim feminism's radical, liberatory potential. Andy Zeisler is a writer, editor, and co-founder of Bitch Media. After the interview, we'll hear another installment of Rotten History from Ronaldo Magaldi, as well as more of your answers from this week's Question from Hell. So without further delay, let's roll the interviews. This is hell. There's feminism and then there's indigenous feminism, and the two are very different things. The former is embedded within indigenous matriarchy, while the latter is crushed by Western patriarchy. Here to explain the difference and to tell us what it means for the latest third wave of feminism, as embodied in last week's Women's March and the so-called women's movement that is starting now, which is fantastic, Sarah Sunshine Manning wrote the Truth Dig article, No Indigenous Women, no Women's Movement. Welcome to This Is Hell, Sarah. Thank you for having me. You can find Sarah on Twitter at Sarah Sunshine M. That's Sarah Sunshine M. Sarah is a citizen of the Shoshone Paiute tribes of the Duck Valley Indian Reservation in Idaho and Nevada and a descendant of the Chippewa Cree and Hopi tribes. She is an independent journalist and a resident of the Lake Traverse Indian Reservation in South Dakota. To you, how much are the women's marches about a women's movement? To what extent are the women's marches leading to a women's movement? Well, I think 
There are there are different answers to that question. Um, some some theorists say that we are even in the fourth wave of of feminism, but um, I know that it, I think in, historically we don't necessarily make those calls until after the fact. But um, what we see really with um, the administration with the Trump administration is this this chorus of women throughout the nation that are really uh, wanting to pinpoint and nip in the bud just the many ways in which patriarchy has seeped into every American institution and, and basically is the foundation of every American institution, as is many other forms of inequity. So I say the, the women's marches are, are just one one way that we see women stepping forward and trying to trying to draw attention to just this idea that because this this such thick patriarchy and sexism if it exists at the very top of this nation then then we have a lot of examination to do we have a lot of examination to do, but uh, there are people who say that we should not be critical of the Women's March or the potential for a women's movement because, uh, for instance, some people are saying that it is not inclusive enough. It does not, as you point out, it does not address the concerns of indigenous women. And as African-American activists have said, it doesn't necessarily address the concerns of African-American women as much as it should. But to what degree can the women's movement be all-inclusive when you're Nearly half of all white women voted for Donald Trump. I mean, can there be such thing as an all-inclusive women's movement or women's march when the march by its nature is political and women like men have varying political beliefs? Right. I absolutely think it's possible. Um, But at the same time, going back to the women's march itself, if you go and check out their mission, they're very explicit about their goal to be more inclusive and intersectional in this wave of of the women's movement. But in order to be intersectional, it doesn't necessarily just mean inviting people of various different ethnic groups or marginalized groups to the march. It's really, really being more proactive and, and giving them a seat at the table. And in order to be intersectional, if you are heading up any movement for social justice on American soil, your narrative is incredibly incomplete without examining that the land upon which you stand is indigenous land. And unless you are a Native American person, you benefit from the genocide of indigenous people. And so I think for the Women's March organizers and founders to make that declaration that they want to be inclusive and intersectional, they really need to dig deep. And they really need to recognize what that entails when they're standing on indigenous land. Um, I think that's definitely a difficult task, I think, because to to recognize that you benefit from the genocide of another of an entire group of people near annihilation, that that triggers a lot of uh, emotion and cognitive dissonance that is hard for a lot of people to face. So it, it. I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, when we posted your article on social media, a listener linked an article, this is very much along with what you were saying, uh, that was at SBS, an Australian public uh, broadcasting radio television online outlet. The article from last November is headlined, The Enduring Violence Against Indigenous Women in Canada, and it's written by Nahani Fontaine, a member of the Sag King uh, First Nation community. And Nahani writes, 
Canada's colonial history includes strategically, methodically, and tragically racializing and and sexually objectifying indigenous women and girls' bodies, minds, and spirits as a means of purposely oppressing indigenous peoples and territories. This is, of course, is no different from the colonial project carried out across the globe, where even today imperialism's patriarchy seeks conquest uh, through gendered, less than less than narratives or social constructions and through the rape, isolation, dislocation and murder of women and girls. So what to, to what degree do you think the difference between protests indigenous women have carried out in places like Canada, where they have been victims and remain victims of systemic abuse, and the marches of the last two years here in the States and around the world, uh, the degree to which the protests challenge not only colonialism, but imperialism is the problem that the Women's March doesn't challenge imperialism the way that indigenous women's movements do? Absolutely. Yes, that's exactly the point. Indigenous women tie their feminism, which is which is different, to colonialism, to settler colonialism, because it is with settler colonialism that patriarchy was brought to this brought to this continent. When you look at the whole of, of indigenous societies, there is a tremendous amount of diversity, but by and large, indigenous societies in the United States, within the boundaries of the United States, I can say, and and even beyond those borders, were matriarchal and egalitarian societies, some matrilineal, where you're where you identify your your lineage, your heritage, your your clan ancestry to to the mother. Women owned the property. Um, women were vocal and important in in governmental decision making, and the earth itself, most importantly was recognized as a feminine source because the earth provides our nourishment, the earth provides medicines that heal our ailments. So with the recognition that the earth first is our mother, that obviously fanned out to other understandings of indigenous cultures. So with the with the arrival of settlers, that that was swiftly changed. With the with the arrival of some of the first um, European settlers, they they did immediately objectify Native American women. Native American women were viewed as sexual objects. We say this evolution of the term squaw uh, that goes back to a term, an Algonquin word meaning female genitalia, and that's how Native American women were identified. And so that today we see that Native American women suffer the highest rates of violence and sexual assault is a direct result of settler colonialism because that just did not exist in our communities prior to colonialism. And so when we are participating in these marches, it's to bring a very different angle, a very different perspective to the conversation that I think hasn't been a part of the first, second, and third wave of feminism thus far. At least it hasn't been a very a very um, central part of understanding inequity. And uh, the term feminism itself continues to be debated in tribal communities, as you write. Some reject the term and other indigenous women qualify their feminist politics with the more appropriate term that you were just using, indigenous feminism. How much is there any disconnect between feminism and indigenous uh, feminism? Because within your community, indigenous women don't live within a patriarchy. How does that not, how does that living within a matrilineal society change the way that you view feminism? For instance, uh, you were talking, you were touch, touching on environmentalism. Doesn't indigenous feminism lead to more intersectionality with environmentalism than Western feminism does? Absolutely. 
one one really beautiful thing that happened during one of the women's marches in Santa Fe, New Mexico, was a group of Taos Pueblo or Pueblo women basically took the stage at the event because there was not representation from the local Native American community. So they took the stage and and very eloquently and beautifully spoke to their perspectives as as Native American women. But most importantly, towards the end of the talk, a woman by the name of Bev Billy, who is an elder of the Taos and Acoma Pueblo, said, don't forget Mother Earth. Don't forget Mother Earth um, as, as our first feminine source, as our first mother. So so to answer that question very, very specifically, yes, Indigenous feminism is tied to environmentalism completely. Um, but and then to also touch back to the other question, how is Indigenous feminism differently? I don't want to um, mislead in that and to say to say that Native American women today don't suffer from patriarchy and sexism because we do. And the reason why is because colonialism has impacted and infiltrated our own communities. And so if we're working in a Western institution that is, is dominated traditionally by men, we, and we're working within that institution, we are going to experience sexism. So there is overlap. There is overlap between indigenous feminism and mainstream feminism. But then there's a lot of divergence as well. And I think that has a lot to do with the idea that um, going, one of the things that I mentioned in, in the column was that the appearance of Native American women is often very different at these marches. You see Native American women wearing floor-length skirts that are a part of their traditional attire, whereas with mainstream feminists, skirts are sort of viewed as, as a form of oppression, right? A, a very gendered type of clothing that many feminists have, have very... Uh, have chosen to not wear. They've chosen to um, push back against gender norms, such as long hair. And then you see Native American women with really long hair. But on the other hand, long hair within Native American communities was not a gender-specific, it wasn't a gender-specific style. Native American men had long hair. Even in ceremonies, Native American men wear skirts. And so I think I'm aware of at some of these marches where some mainstream feminists had took issue with the fact that Native American women were there in long skirts because they just did not understand the context. Um, another really big difference is that to be a mother in Native American societies is incredibly beautiful. To take care of the home, you know that you're respected and appreciated and you're powerful taking care of the home, whereas within mainstream feminism, you feel that you are oppressed. In, in Joan Didion's really, really great essay, The Women's Movement, um, written in the 70s, she opens up her essay with um, something to the, I, I know I'm not going to get this verbatim, but she said, you know, in order to make an omelet, you not only need those broken eggs, but you need somebody oppressed to break them. And this is basically the, the thought of the feminist movement is they've really looked at even cooking as, as a form of oppression. And, and it's a very different for Native American women. And even within our community, so it's not only that we don't feel oppressed cooking, is that people in our community is truly value us for cooking. You know, so there's just some very, a, a lot of cultural differences that, that make our feminism different. And, and um, one, of the, one of the main issues, in addition to environmentalism, um, that I, I want to talk about also that I mentioned in the column was this idea of rematriation. So to rematriate a space, you acknowledge the earth as the mother, you recognize that there were original inhabitants tied to that land, inextricably linked to that land. 
And then you also recognize the power of women as life givers. And um, it's, it's just a really different, it's a really different concept that I think uh, needs to be considered if this wave of feminism is going to be intersectional and inclusive. Let's talk about that intersectionalism and inclusiveness just for a second. Uh, You write that patriarchy, capitalism, racism, and rugged individualism, all of those systems have devastated indigenous nations and cultures. The same interrelated system of power many indigenous people understand is responsible for human rights violations across all genders and cultures. So to what degree do you see... I'm not trying to pit one against the other, but to what degree do you see indigenous feminism as more inclusive than what we might call popular white feminism? So a popular phrase in modern times, as as far as feminism goes, is to smash the patriarchy. And when I think of smashing the patriarchy, I think implied in that is, is sort of a smashing of men. And for, for Native American communities, we see our men as also victims of patriarchy, victims of settler colonialism brought patriarchy. So we're, we're, we're not against our men, even though some of our men may have been afflicted by sexism. Um, we understand that that, that shift in, in indigenous thought, that um, assault on our culture, is it goes back to an assault on on our on our life ways because of settler colonialism, and so we're not we're not attacking patriarchy first. You know that's basically a a part of this larger assault on our 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 health and well being as a people. And so um, I think sometimes mainstream feminism can be hard for for some people to digest because it is as if men are the bad guys constantly where, and I, I don't think they're, it's, it's as safe for them to be brought into the space to say, you know what, you are also a victim of patriarchy. You're not the enemy. This idea, this energy of patriarchy, sure that, that is, that is the enemy. Women can also be perpetrators of, of patriarchy as well. Um, but with, with indigenous feminism, our men are, are so important to us, we would not want to smash them. We need them. So you quote social media manager at Self Magazine, Taylin Washington Harmon, a black woman who did not participate in the Women's March this year, who wrote an uh, article headlined, Keep Your, I don't know, I don't even know if I can say this on the radio, and uh, Keep Your Pussy Hats uh, to, off, our, off My Feminism. And in that article, she argues, this isn't the quote that you give, but in that article, she argues, I chose not to participate in my local women's march in New York City this year for a variety of political reasons, mostly because of the idea of performative activism and the lasting action that rarely follows. And a hat was put on a Harriet Tubman uh, statue, and that was the icing on the proverbial cake for me. The hat was likely created with good intentions, symbolizing the creativity and strength of women as exemplified by vaginas, but so much is missing from this emblem. The vagina, especially a pink vagina, should not and cannot serve as a universal symbol of womanhood across racial and gender lines. To put it simply, not all women have vaginas, not all men have penises, not all vaginas are pink. As a black, heterosexual, cisgender woman, I cannot identify with a pink vagina as a symbol of my womanhood 
or my feminism. The anatomically focused symbol of the hat unites those self-identified women under one unique experience of womanhood to the exclusion of anyone else. To what degree do you think the Women's March is simply unaware that they are not being as inclusive as they should or could be? And if they don't notice to you, what explains why they don't? Much like the rest of the, of American society, participants in the women's movement are products of a very whitewashed socialization, a very whitewashed education, probably by way of public education. And in American public education, it's, it's no secret that what children learn in schools is really to elevate this narrative of American, exceptional, American exceptionalism of manifest destiny, the concept that God gave this land to white settlers and and the indigenous people were merely obstacles. Um, And so there's never an exploration of the fact that human beings were killed and tortured and brutalized and forgotten about purposely here. That's not explored. And so children in schools are not given that ability to empathize and and to think deeply and critically about their presence on this land as beneficiaries of settler colonialism. That is not explored. And meanwhile, they're learning. There are entire middle school and high school classes devoted to the Holocaust. But I think it's very deliberate that our public education system, that American institutions do not explore this idea of genocide on American soil. And so women in these feminist marches are products of that. And so anytime you tell somebody you are benefiting off my pain, that's really hard for them to come to terms with. And so many American people do not attempt to engage with that. They don't, they don't want to. They either outright refuse or they try to disarm um, that conversation by saying, hey, get over it. But you're, you know, we live right now. You need to be thankful for colonialism. Um, there's, there's been an outright denial of having that conversation. But see, we're, it's, it's not, this conversation is not new, pointing to Indigenous genocide. Even Martin Luther King was very famous for saying that this country was born in genocide. And, um, but people didn't want to hear that. See, people don't want to engage with that. There is an Amer- there's a Holocaust museum in the United States, but there is not a museum devoted to the Holocaust of Indigenous peoples. And so... It, it, it isn't surprising to me that in the women's movement that um, we see these upper class white women that really want justice, yet they have not, they have these blinders on, they have this humongous blind spot because they can't come to terms with the privilege that they occupy as white women. So uh, to what degree is because, you know, uh, Western uh, feminism is about equality of the sexes and indigenous feminism is about what you talk about, uh, rematriation, bringing back a more matriarchal society. So is that the biggest difference and obstacle, in your opinion, in the women's movement and indigenous feminism, that one believes in equality and the other one believes in uh, a matri- uh, matriarchy, or am I getting something incorrectly? Uh, that's, that's a part of it. That's a real difference. But I think the disconnect comes from more, more significantly the idea that uh, white women are beneficiaries of, of uh, settler colonialism and they benefit off of the indigenous off of off of the genocide of indigenous people they in santa fe one of the one of the 
chants of the of the Native women in the march was that you did this on our backs. You did this on our backs. And they were there in force, Indigenous women of that region. And and so I think what we see what we see a lot of times that a lot of these movements is is this is this frustration among people of color because white women do not want to engage with that reality. And so I think one of the biggest one of the biggest differences is that white feminists occupy humongous privilege that cannot be ignored ever if they want to make advancements in this wave of feminism, if they want it to be intersectional. It, they, they're missing this huge context to understanding feminism, understanding sexism, that it's tied to settler colonialism. So they have to engage with settler colonialism. Um, but yes, it is, it is a really big difference going back to going back to matriarchy. So I think some societies were, were more matriarchal, where, um, but there was a balance. There was a balance. It was um, not to paint Native American communities as these utopian societies because we had struggles too. But at the same time, um, it wasn't to the degree that I think a lot of times people um, attempt, attempt to diminish tribal societies by saying, oh, you killed each other before we came here because it wasn't like that. But tribal societies existed in a more egalitarian fashion where the roles that women occupied, although they may have been in the home, did not diminish them and roles were very fluid. So the tribe that I, where I grew up on the Duck Valley Indian Reservation, gender roles were incredibly fluid. Um, my grandma my great grandma, who was blind, would say, "Don't act like you can't do something." And so she did everything as a woman. She hunted, she gathered, she provided for her family. My mother, growing up in the traditional way, hunted for her family. Uh, roles were fluid. You were not diminished if you were a man and you picked berries, or you were a woman and you hunted. Um, so there isn't with indigenous feminism as as much of a of a goal to attack the the gender role or to attack um power that men have because we've always had power we have been speaking with sarah sunshine manning she wrote the truth dig article no indigenous women no women's movement she is a citizen of the shoshone paiute tribes of the duck valley indian reservation in idaho and nevada a descendant of the chippewa Cree, and hopi tribes she's an independent journalist and a resident of the lake traverse indian reservation in South Dakota, and you can follow her on Twitter at Sarah Sunshine M. Sarah Sunshine M. One last question for you, Sarah. And as it is with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. There are those who say that nobody should be critical of the Women's March or the Women's Movement, that that kind of criticism may lead to an undermining of the March or the Movement. So I guess. Generally, what do you think happens when something is above criticism? But more importantly, how much do you fear that any criticism of the Women's March will hurt whatever women's movement is emerging, building, and in some cases already succeeding? It will not hurt the women's movement. Any attempt to call out mainstream feminism is really an attempt to call up mainstream white women to deepen their understanding of injustice. It is not personal. It is a, a, a bigger picture of, of humanity that, that they can and should engage with. So 
mainstream feminists, white feminist beneficiaries of settler colonialism were calling you up, engage with this idea that if you were on American soil as somebody who is not indigenous, you benefit from the genocide of indigenous people and you need to engage with that. Sarah, I really appreciate you being on the show. This was a fascinating article. The thing I like the most about doing this show is learning new things. And I really appreciate the fact that you've introduced me to indigenous feminism. And I can't believe I'm doing the show for 20 years, interviewing so many different indigenous women, and it's never come up before, which is totally my fault. So I really appreciate you teaching me something this week. And I really am so glad that you're on our show. Thank you so much for being on the air with us. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. This is hell. Feminism was so cool in the 1970s. Then, as our next guest says, feminism didn't have an image problem. It had an image catastrophe. Recently, however, what had become the new F-word got cool again. But how good is the new feminism for, well, feminism? Here to explain how feminism got its cool back and what it means for the current state and future of feminism Writer, editor, and cultural critic Andy Zeisler is the author of the new book, We Were Feminist Once, From Riot Girl to Cover Girl, The Buying and Selling of a Political Movement. Welcome to This Is Hell, Andy. Thanks for having me. Andy is the co-founder of Bitch Media and a longtime freelance writer and illustrator. Andy is the co-editor of Bitch Fest, 10 years of cultural criticism from the pages of Bitch Magazine. You write how uh, you we called the zine bitch because we hope to reclaim the word and to make its verb form into something that could affect change just by speaking up and encouraging others to do the same. The word we were equally concerned with reclaiming, though, was in the subtitle, a feminist response to pop culture. Born in the 1970s, we came of ideological age during the backlash, seeing and hearing feminism dismissed as, at best, a vexing political incident that had come and gone, or, at worst, a social experiment that had succeeded at the expense of a healthy society and left men hungry for home-cooked meals, children marooned in front of blaring televisions, and women bitter and love-starved. Feminism didn't have an image problem. It had an image catastrophe. If that was the image of uh, that feminism had, then how did you become attracted to feminism? Did you see successes that were not found in its popular image? Yeah, I mean, certainly um, just on sort of a, you know, sort of an anecdotal level. I mean, my co-founders and I grew up in New York City, so we certainly knew, um, uh, we certainly knew people who had, uh, like women who had been politicized by feminism. And, you know, we certainly, you know, had teachers and figures of authority in our lives who um, were examples of people who had really struggled and engaged with feminism. Um, one of one of the one of my inspirations personally uh, were was the uh, the art the art world um, group the Gorilla Girls who would put up these posters in New York City and uh, you know about sort of the the institutional sexism of the fine arts world. Um, and these were really, you know, it was really powerful and it was really 
I, I like the fact that there was an image, there, there was like striking images, there was sort of um, graphic and verbal wit. There was a real sense that these struggles were still ongoing and that if people didn't think they existed, you know, like the cliche goes, they just weren't paying attention. Yeah, there was, a, I'm not too sure if this was a national group or not, but there was a group like that in the mid to late 80s here in Chicago called Sister Serpents. And that really got me uh, hopeful that there was going to be a reinvigorated feminism. But you write that feminism, so long dismissed as the realm of the angry, the cynical, the man-hating, and the off-puttingly hairy, was officially a thing. It was hot. And perhaps most important, it was sellable. And again, this happened in the, later in the 90s. But to you, what explains the unsellability of feminism in the 1980s and up to until just recently? Well, there was a really, really concerted effort on the part of the media, and I wrote about this in the book. There was this really, there was this sense of um, real fear and threat, um, and a lot of this had to do with, you know, the the advent of uh, Reaganomics and the sort of collusion with the religious right and the the sort of um, new conservatism around this this fear of what happens when you know this very specific, very ahistorical, you know, sort of 1950s white middle-class status quo gets upended by things like feminism or gay rights or civil rights. Um, so there was so much, there was, there was such a reactionary turn in the 1980s, um, and, and the media really ran with it, I mean, in a very irresponsible way. Um, Newsweek, at some point in the, in the 80s, in the, uh, I forget if it was the 80s or the early 90s, had this cover story that basically um, extrapolated from an essay, I mean, a, a study about marriage patterns and, and ended up declaring that women over 40 who hadn't been married were more likely to die in a terrorist attack than get married. Um, and that was the kind of mismaking that was just absolutely shamelessly going on. And, you know, Newsweek would later apologize for that story. Um, but the damage was done because things like that were so already in line with what a lot of um, the public and certainly a lot of what politicians wanted to believe about feminism that it just created this kind of media monster um, of really specious arguments and fear-mongering around what it meant. And, you know, we still see this going on today. There's this very zero-sum idea uh, about progressive social movements. I mean, we saw it with civil rights. We saw it, we see it with gay marriage. And we certainly see it with feminism, this idea that whatever, um, whatever an underclass gains, the overclass then loses. You know, we really still believe that whatever elevates women must take away from or denigrate men. And that's not true. And history shows us that that's not true. But it's a very, very seductive belief somehow uh, to cling to. Uh, when you write about feminist, feminism being cool again in media and popular culture, you mentioned how in August 2014, Beyonce commanded the stage at the close of MTV's Video Music Awards with the word feminist glowing in neon lights behind her. Shortly after, Emma Watson, beloved for years as Harry Potter's Hermione Granger, gave a speech on the importance of gender equality at the UN. Taylor Swift, who several years earlier had disavowed feminism, quickly changed tack with a media announcement that, in fact, 
she'd been feminist all along. At Paris Fashion Week, Chanel's uh, runway show finale took the form of a feminist rally with models draped in the label's signatures, tweeds, uh, raising signs that read, history is her story and women's rights are more and uh, all right. So feminism being cool is new, as in only a couple years old when it comes to the way in which it is perceived in popular culture and the media. What do you think caused that sudden shift? Is it because the feminism of today isn't the feminism of the 1970s? Maybe, but I, I just want to put a caveat in there that feminism actually did have, uh, you know, a, a brief, uh, like a, a resurgence and, and something that I think galvanized a lot of uh, people of my generation in the 1990s, um, both in pop culture and in politics. I mean, and I write about this in the book, I think that the, you know, people who had been brought up to believe that feminism was something that had happened, uh, especially young people, um, really had a wake-up call, you know, in the form of the Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill hearings, where we really um, learned how sort of retrograde uh, gender relations were, and certainly gender relations and, and race relations. Um, and then, you know, you had, you know, really, really famous people like Kurt Cobain and the Beastie Boys sort of standing up for feminism um, in ways that, that, you know, continued throughout the 90s. So I think there was a, a point before now at which feminism became cool, but I think the difference now um, is that pop culture and mass culture have become so sort of indistinguishable. I mean, in the 1990s, there still was this separation between sort of like mainstream culture and alternative culture. And so a lot of the attention being paid to feminism was coming out of uh, sort of formerly underground spaces or spaces that had been inspired um, by sort of underground and progressive politics. I think the difference now is that we're living in such a more mediated space um, where there increasingly isn't much of a line between things like high culture and low culture or mass culture and popular culture and political culture. It's all sort of blended together. Um, I think a, a big part of how feminism now has become this kind of mainstream buzzword has a lot to do with the sort of alternative and explicitly political and progressive spaces in which feminism flowered in like the 1990s and the 2000s. And what I mean by that is like, you know, the internet for, for instance, has always, you know, since it's, since it's um, inception has been a place where people have been talking about feminism and utopianism and the importance of, you know, sort of, really taking on the idea of, of gender as a construct and as a way to, to sort of look at politics and at popular culture. Um, so things like Beyonce and Emma Watson and Taylor Swift and Mad Max Fury Road and the way that we talk about feminism now really came out of uh, part of a, you know, it was part of a sort of gr more general groundswell of awareness that had grown um, not primarily online, but largely online over, you know, the preceding decade or two decades um, via blogs and via social media and also via like current events that brought feminist language in contact with the mainstream. Um, you know, nobody was talking about the Bechdel test, for instance, five years ago, uh, except for on feminist blogs or on film criticism blogs. Now we're seeing it referenced in like the New York Times and Entertainment Weekly. Um, very few people were talking about things like victim blaming and slut shaming outside of feminist contexts uh, a decade or two ago. But, you know, when we have these high profile rape cases like Steubenville or Bill Cosby, 
all of a sudden things, concepts, and language that has been nurtured for decades in feminist spaces is becoming part of a mainstream culture. And I think that's, you know, that is absolutely a good thing. But yeah, I mean, I, I guess the point is that things like Beyonce didn't happen in a vacuum. They happened because there was this feminism already really percolating um, below the surface and these conversations that had grown um, much more nuanced and much more um, widespread over time. You write how there's a mainstream celebrity consumer embrace of feminism that positions it as a cool, fun, accessible identity that anyone can adopt. Yeah, I've seen you write how you've seen this called uh, pop feminism, feel good feminism, white feminism, and you write how you call it marketplace feminism. It's decontextualized, it's depoliticized, and it's probably feminism's most popular iteration ever. How is feminism right now decontextualized and depoliticized? Well, um, I I mean, I think a big part, and and, and not all of it is, but what I'm talking about, yeah, marketplace feminism, um, it's decontextualized because basically um, it's so centered in capitalism, which is not about, you know, it's not about social justice. It's not about equality. It's about individuals um, picking and choosing, you know, from from a, a big marketplace of, of ideas or ideology or products. Um, the option is to pick what appeals to you and ignore stuff that doesn't appeal to you. So marketplace feminism um, and its decontextualization is, you know, it, it results in things like Carly Fiorina saying, well, feminism is is basically a feminist is a woman who lives the life she chooses. Well, that sounds great, but what if the life you want to choose involves denying other women the right to control their bodies? What if the life you choose involves achieving your success on the backs of less fortunate women, like your nanny or your maid? Um, so it, it's not. A, it sounds good, right? It sounds like, oh, yes, we should support all women. Um, or, yeah, choosing is great. But what does choice mean when it's exclusively individual? Um, choice is not the same as liberation in a feminist context. If you're just choosing choices that make your life better, uh, but you're not doing anything to advance the station of all women and make it so that all women have those choices, um, I, I don't. I don't think that's something you can call feminist. You can call it self-actualized. You can call it self-empowering, um, but it has nothing to do with an ethic of gender equality or of liberation for all people. And I want to make sure that I say marketplace feminism when I'm talking about the kind of feminism that you're critical of, because as you're as you're right in correcting me, if I just say feminism, then it gets a little bit blurred. So is the reason that marketplace feminism is popular is because it is decontextualized and depoliticized, the popularity being based on a seeming lack of challenge to power? Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think that's a big part of why I do feel like there needs to be a differentiation. Um, you know, if marketplace feminism for some people is a gateway to feminism, that's great. Uh, but I don't necessarily think we should be pretending um, that, you know, having multinational corporations that market products to us telling us that, you know, they'll make us feel powerful or they'll make us feel good about themselves um, is the same as actually working toward liberation for all women. And so, you know, I, I think as a, as a global world of consumers who are, you know, who have basically been convinced that 
our main choices lie in consumer products, you know, maybe it maybe it is progress to be able to say, oh, well, you know, the products that are marketed to women now don't use the language of shame anymore. They use the language of liberation. I mean, in that context, sure, I guess that's an improvement, but it's not the same thing uh, as feminism. It's still, you know, really using women to do the work of capitalism for it. And in the same way, marketing products, you know, like movies um, or books or like energy drinks as feminist, um, that basically makes it so that feminism is, again, not about an ongoing, evolving ethic or a lens, um, but about a metric of what's okay to consume and what should be consumed. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think there, there are a lot of layers to this. So how important is a criticism of capitalism to feminism? Because one of the uh, critiques that we've heard from a lot of people who have been on our show uh, who are contributors to Liza Featherstone's book, Faux Feminism, has, mm-hmm. have said that uh, Hillary Clinton is not willing to be somebody who is a critic of capitalism uh, or, or any of the uh, or any of the candidates for that matter so how critical is a uh, how critical is a criticism of capitalism to feminism oh it's incredibly critical and that's you know why feminism has always struggled with sort of like um, mainstream public optics is because it's very very hard to work against capitalism and it feels like pushing back the ocean with a broom. Um, it's sort of like, well, we just need to go along to get along. We need to work within the system. You know, all these cliches you hear dismantling the master's house with the master's tools. There is this idea that there's no way to be truly transformational um, without somehow working within the dominant system. And I, you know, I mean, I, I see that. I think um, certainly the norm more and more is to focus on individuals rather than systems and to use individuals as examples of um, how feminism has worked. You know, we decide that feminism has worked because we've got a viable presidential candidate like Hillary Clinton, or we decide that women can do anything because Oprah. Um, But unless we look at systems, we're not really moving toward widespread change. Um, You know, there are always going to be successful, powerful individuals whose, you know, ability to be powerful and be self-actualized and be, in the eyes of some people, feminist, um, is really enabled by their ability to engage with capitalism. Um, but yeah, unless we actually look at the, the way that, you know, inequality um, is so central to that system, there's not going to be, you know, social and, and political transformation for everyone who needs it. And some, you know, I mean, that, you know, to, to, to a lot of people, that's just, um, that's just life and, and change is incremental and, and all that. Um, and I think certainly, yeah, it would be a lot to ask, uh, of the first female presidential candidate to be the perfect feminist candidate, because once you get to that level, um, you're really just working in a system of compromises. Um, but I don't think that means we should, I don't think that means we should sort of throw it out as an option. I mean, I think we really do need to be thinking about what it, what it means. Like, not that Hillary Clinton is 
the be-all, end-all for feminism, but that maybe she's a step on the way to recognizing the limits of feminism um, in this sort of corporate capitalist sphere um, and a way to sort of focus on looking at what the transformative potential is for a anti-capitalist feminism. We are speaking with Andy Zeisler. She is the author of the new book, We Were Feminists Once, From Riot Girl to Cover Girl, The Buying and Selling of a Political Movement. You can find a direct link at our website, thisishell.com. You click on the link and it takes you directly to our publisher's webpage where you can purchase the book it from them. So, Andy, why doesn't marketplace feminism turn into political gains because the impact it would have on media and popular culture. I mean, but because this week, you know, uh, we have the new coolness of uh, feminism, as you were describing. But as the Washington Post reported, lawmakers in Oklahoma approved a bill Thursday that would make it a felony for anyone to perform an abortion and revoke the medical licenses of any physician who assists in such a procedure. The Oklahoma bill is the first such measure of its kind. So why isn't marketplace feminism translating into opposition to bills like this so they never get signed into law by the governor of Oklahoma? Yeah, I mean, that is that is the question. That's absolutely the question. And that's one of the reasons I really wanted to write this book, because we see, um, you know, a lot of, you know, so-called feminist gains being trumpeted. Um, but it's, so much in the sphere of representation and reaching women as audiences, and again, capitalism. Um, and I, you know, I mean, this this sounds very pessimistic, but my sense is that it's it's so much easier to focus on the positive. It's so much easier to focus on um, a lot of the sort of symbolic and or representational gains than to really grapple with the idea that from a policy position we are losing so much ground um, in a way that, you know, if you had told me 20 years ago when we started Bitch that we would not only still be talking about, you know, bodily autonomy, but really fighting for basic things like access to contraception, I just, I wouldn't have believed it. Like, it's it's so dystopian. Um, and and I, I do think it's it's much easier to be like, oh, I'm so excited about you know, the all-female Ghostbusters remake, which I am excited about, by the way. Um, It's much easier to focus on the good things that are happening and the things that are happening in the realm of representation um, sort of on on an optic level than to, to look at the way that rights have been chipped away to this incredibly dystopian extreme. But do you think one is, when I was reading your book, uh, I had this thought that Maybe one is a blowback from the other. For instance, you write, it's become a constant game of good news, bad news. As we celebrate the increasing number of female TV showrunners and writers, Senate Republicans have twice unanimously uh, voted against an act designed to close the gendered wage gap. And you point out the successes of, uh, for instance, the media successes of Caitlyn Jenner's transition. And you write about, uh, you know, uh, excitedly binge watch a Netflix series about life and love in a uh, women's prison. How much do you think the policy, the very far right-wing policy reactions that we're seeing today are in reaction to the good things that are happening in the media? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question, and it's hard to know. Um, I don't imagine that, you know, there are a bunch of, like, um, Senate 
Republicans sitting around watching Orange is the New Black and being like, hmm, how can we, you know, how can we undermine this? Um, but I, you know, yeah, I do think it, it's all part of this, um, again, this kind of zero-sum idea that people see change around them. They see change in the real world um, that makes them think they're losing ground. Um, and they panic. And there is this, this very real sense that, you know, the world of popular culture and media is more and more starting to reflect the actual real world that we live in, in terms of diversity, in terms of different lenses, in terms of different um, opinions and standpoints. Um, and I think that is very, that is very frightening. And for a lot of people, it, it really represents a fear that they have lost control um, of the conversation, of policy, and of power. So, yeah, I think there's definitely this, this very symbiotic relationship that's developed where, you know, the more backward we go um, in terms of things like, uh, you know, gender and race relations and, and, and issues around, um, you know, gay and transgender rights, the more uh, people who, who are creators uh, in media and pop culture push back on it in many ways, creating, you know, the world that they want to live in. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's really hard to imagine because, uh, yeah, because it just, it seems so, it seems so impossible that this is this world that we live in, um, where the gap between, you know, what we're seeing in our popular culture and what we're seeing on the ground in our state legislatures is, uh, is just getting vaster and vaster. So to what degree does market, if at all, does marketplace feminism exacerbate sexism? Well, I mean, definitely in a few ways. And, I, you know, I think part of it is the, depolitis, the depoliticization and decontextualization, decontextualization that comes with selling uh, feminism or, you know, empowerment as a product. Um, I think there's a way in which we, you know, we can feel good about, again, advertisers, for instance, recognizing that it's better to appeal to women than to insult them um, and and assume that that's going to have some sort of trickle-down effect uh, in terms of policy and in terms of how we sort of, uh, you know, value gender equality. Um, I think there's a way in which marketplace feminism um, – over-invest in the idea of how far we have come rather than looking at the many ways in which we haven't come as far as we need to. Um, yeah, and, and I, I, I certainly think that, that that's an issue. But I also don't necessarily see, um, I don't necessarily see that going unquestioned, and that's very heartening to me. Um, marketplace feminism is certainly a huge force in, in pop culture and media and advertising. But the more, you know, the more time goes on and, and the more these sort of policy decisions and these legislative decisions really make an impact, the more I think we do see um, people mobilizing on a very grassroots level um, to combat it. And it doesn't necessarily mean that marketplace feminism won't still exist or have its place, uh, but it does mean that there will be, you know, more voices um, sort of trying to get people to, to reconcile this idea of where, where, we, where we still need to go with, with the gains that we're sort of celebrating. So why isn't it's better than it used to be enough? <laughs> 
Um, I, I mean, I don't think that's ever enough. I think that's, you know, certainly always going to be the case. Um, yeah, I, I mean, certainly in terms of uh, feminism, it's better than it used to be is is honestly not saying much. Um, but yeah, I, I think that that's uh, a kind of representative fallacy that can make us feel a lot better about ourselves. And again, um, maybe not push as much on, on what still needs to be done. Um, and I think in pop culture, we see this a lot with what I call sort of rear view feminist uh, products, you know, um, Mad Men or Agent Carter or movies like Suffragette, where it's sort of like uh, the, the idea seems to be, oh, look at how, look at how awful it was look how proud and, and smug and, and pleased with ourselves we can be that we're not as horribly sexist or racist um, or transphobic or homophobic as we were, you know, 30, 40, 100 years ago. Um, I think, you know, when we sort of allow ourselves to to be urged to pat ourselves on the back like that, it can, I mean, even if momentarily, it can make us... Um, stop thinking about where we still need to go. And it can encourage us to not focus so much on the systems that still remain and on the unfinished projects that remain. Is marketplace feminism then about not changing a sexist system, but conforming to it? Yeah, very much so. It's about conforming to it. It's about sort of harnessing it for individual gain rather than, um, you know, global institutional um, transformational gain. It's, um, it's not that it's immoral, it's just that it's really underachieving. And I, I think that that is something that <laughs> that is problematic in so many ways, you know, beyond feminism. And, and, and it, that, too, is a, a symptom of capitalism, where we, we really do, um, we are encouraged to feel like this is the system we've got, all we can do is work within it and make, you know, the limited changes we can make and not think about, you know, the sort of more foundational change that's needed. We are speaking with Andy Zeisler. She is author of the new book, We Were Feminists Once, From Riot Girl to Cover Girl, The Buying and Selling of a Political Movement. Andy is the co-founder of Bitch Media and a longtime freelance writer and illustrator. Andy is the co-editor of Bitch Fest, 10 Years of Cultural Criticism from the pages of Bitch Magazine. And if your bio makes me say bitch one more time, Andy... I don't know what I'm going to do. All right. So uh, as you write, uh, you look at what a you quote, look at what a social, political and still radical movement becomes as it is filtered through the pop culture and media that serve as its contemporary translators. Is U.S. pop culture and media then a gatekeeper for capitalism, de-radicalizing any political movement, depoliticizing it so it's no longer a threat to the overall system's shortcomings? I mean, that's a good question. And, you know, I, I don't know if it's true across the board, because I certainly see, um, and, and I think we can all see ways historically where, you know, American pop culture in particular has offered really great specific challenges to capitalism and to systems like, um, you know, sexism and, and racism and homophobia. Um, you know, if you look at, you know, Kendrick Lamar or Beyonce just in the past year, I think they're doing just that. Um, certainly, you know, Richard Pryor, Lenny Bruce, comedians of the past, George Carlin, all of, all of so much of our pop culture really has um, taken, you know, 
American capitalism and sort of appeasement to task um, and pointed out often in, in really great ways um, it, their shortcomings. But I do think that, you know, again, the the world that we're living in is so much more capitalist. It's so much um, it's so much more mediated. Uh, the the power of an independent um, system of production and and independent labels and publishers, all of the things that um, sort of globalization and the you know multinational conglomerates have have taken away um, has all you know managed in a way to to make it harder to do stuff that's outside the mainstream um, you know I think the uh, the telecom act of 1996 in terms of of really um, foreclosing on competition and on independence, has really had a, a huge effect in how um, the American system produces media and allows for different voices and alternative voices. So I think even when you have really big superstars um, who are who are issuing important challenges, um, they're often doing it within systems that themselves are are you know they're not independent and they're not sufficiently challenging. So, for instance, you know, when you have someone like Emma Watson, who I do think is a really interesting person, and I do think she's very sincere in her feminist beliefs, um, when you have her speaking out on feminism, but then really not being able to do much in the context of her career, which uh, is, you know, so heavily dependent on this mediated corporate system, um, it can be both a blessing and a hindrance. Because I do think she's sincere, but on the other hand, no one is really going to be able to hold her feet to the fire and say, listen, can you just go beyond these platitudes? You write that some women gaining some ground in many areas is not a wholesale feminist victory, especially since even that incremental progress has resulted in a disproportionate amount of fear. So to what degree then is marketplace feminism tokenism, that is a symbolic effort to recruit a small number of women into seats of power in order to give the appearance of equality. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I don't want to deny these women their agency because I, I do think, again, like these are sincere women who believe it. And, and yeah, um, they may be somewhat hampered in their ability to, to take specific stands or be um, sort of radically political. Um, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean they don't want to, and that doesn't mean they don't believe it. So I, I, yeah, I I mean, I'm not sure how to answer that question because in a way I, I think there are, um, there are a lot of people who feel that just doing what they can within the spheres of influence that they have is helpful. And I don't, you know, I don't doubt that. And I think Beyonce's, performance at the at the VMAs in 2014 is a really good example of that. I mean, I think it's really powerful that an entire generation of young people um, is able to come to feminism without that veil of horrible optics that my generation had growing up. I mean, I think it's really powerful that, you know, 8 million people watching the VMAs um, 
looked up feminism after her performance and realized that it wasn't, you know, it was just another word. It wasn't a terrible, um, you know, apocalyptic gender crime. It was a word to describe a state of being. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think absolutely marketplace feminism can be a gateway. Um, and I think it's really up to the people who go through that gateway what they want to do with it. And hopefully they'll dig deeper and hopefully they will sort of take it from there and uh, and take it beyond the realm of just representation. I probably should have started the entire interview with this question, but it's really important for people to understand this. You write, where abortion and bodily autonomy are concerned, we're actually moving backward. Three words, mandatory transvaginal, uh, transvaginal ultrasounds. The Equal Rights Amendment was never ratified, which uh, means that while we may f- uh, feel and l- look equal to our male counterparts, women are still officially, legally, not considered full citizens of the United States. How are women officially legally, not considered full citizens of the United States. And I don't mean within popular culture, but again, I want to stress your words officially and legally, because that's really powerful. Yeah. And that's something that, you know, again, we, um, we're not always, (laughs) we're not always taught, um, within this mediated culture, there is very much this idea, well, you know, women are equal now. Um, feminism happened. We're in the workplaces. We have the opportunities. We have the sexual harassment and discrimination protections. Um, we are we we tend to be encouraged to um, to see uh, you know legal um, legal gains and separate them from the things that sort of underlie them. Um, and then there's also a somewhat ahistorical take on on feminism where no one talks about the ERA because it's considered so symbolic and meaningless. Um, But it's true. The ERA was never ratified. Um, And the ERA for a long time, which a lot of people don't know, was an official part of the Republican platform. Um, It really was this bipartisan thing where it was like, okay, let's, (laughs) let's stop being ridiculous and make women full and equal citizens of the United States. And, um, and (laughs) not enough people wanted to do it. Um, But you know, it, it's something that we tend not to talk about anymore because there have been all these other sort of logistical um, gains and protections put into place. So, yeah, it's a, it's a very weird state of affairs um, that a lot of people really do want to ignore. And again, there is this focus on individuals standing in for entire systems where it's like, well, who cares if the ERA never got ratified because, you know, look at all the female senators we have now. Or look at all the CEOs we have now, which, by the way, is really not that many uh, when you're talking about female CEOs. So there's a, there's a way in which um, you know social social beliefs and expectations and assumptions take a long time to catch up to um, sort of legislative reforms. Um, and yeah, it's uh, it can it can be very depressing. You ask why do women uh, receive rape and death threats on Twitter when they merely express an opinion on sports or video games? When millions of men express the same opinions with no one calling them a stupid whore or threatening to hack their phones or rape their lifeless bodies? How aware do you think our culture is? How aware are they of the level of threats women face when voicing their opinions online? I mean, I think that they are starting to become more 
aware. And I, I think, you know, there's a lot of, of women themselves who are incredibly brave in making that clear and in really putting their own safety and their own sanity um, at risk in, in pointing these things out. I think um, in a lot of ways, and certainly in sort of legal and, and uh, uh, law enforcement ways, there is, this, there is this belief still that what happens online is uh, so materially different than what happens in real life that it can't possibly matter. Um, you know, I would say that I've been incredibly lucky in not getting the level of rape and death threats that a lot of my colleagues have. Um, but I also know that the ones who have have had an incredibly hard time convincing the people who might be able to help them that these things are real, that they aren't just words, um, and that even if they were just words, there's a real reason why those words should not be used and why those words are evidence of this real um, sickness uh, in terms of, of how we see gender equality. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I do think that hopefully people are becoming more aware that this is not a joke. It's not just words. It's not just something you can brush off or say, you know, don't feed the trolls. Um, it has lasting effects, and, um, and I'm not sure what it's going to take to really change things. Uh, but I certainly think a lot of it does have to do with people, also people who are online, who are the ones who are not getting these threats speaking up um, on behalf of the people who are getting them and making it clear that that it's a real problem. It's not just fun. It's not just lols, you know? Yeah. Uh, one of our correspondents uh, has been a target of that kind of attacking. And it really just it just really sickens me. And it, it, it just amazes me that that actually goes on. Uh, you write that while feminist movements seek to change systems, marketplace feminism prioritizes individuals. Does Marketplace feminism then teach women that any inequality they face is their fault and it's uh, time for them to pick themselves up by their bootstraps and the system does not need to be fixed. You do? Yeah. I mean, I, I think um, marketplace feminism doesn't necessarily – I mean, to me, that's more of a hallmark of post-feminism of the 80s and the 90s where women were sort of told like, oh, well, feminism happened. Uh, we have legal protections now. We have anti-discrimination policies now. You have every right to get the same education. It was it was sort of like once the explicit barriers were removed, um, a lot of people were told that they had there was there were no systemic problems and that anything that that was holding them back was was personal or in their own in their own minds. Um, and I think women, and, and and certainly, you know, I mean, let's just say anyone who's not, uh, you know, uh, a white man of a certain class is probably, um, they probably still internalize that a lot, that whatever is happening or not happening to or for them is down to their own sort of uh, inability to, you know, be positive or work within the system or pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Um, marketplace feminism, I guess it's, it's more about, uh, yeah, sort of seeing actualization and success, um, as evidence that no inequality exists. I mean, there's, there's still this very pernicious idea of the meritocracy, um, especially in, in a lot of places like higher education and, and the tech industry, places that have traditionally had very explicit barriers um, 
to achievement and success, which now have fewer barriers, but which still have a lot of um, unspoken, invisible, uh, you know, barriers, but are, you know, sort of go out of their way to to put forth this facade of, um, well, anyone has the chance. And if you're not cutting it, it's it's not us, it's you. You mentioned the many successes feminism has had of late. You commend the courage of the uh, Bill Cosby story in the media, as well as groups like Know Your Nine, named after Title Nine, Hollaback, uh, Girls Who Code, Black Girls Code, Girls Start, the National Domestic uh, Workers Alliance, SPARK, which stands for Sexualization, Protest, Action, Resistance, Knowledge, Campaigns Against Media Sexualization of Girls, the uh, Women's Media Center, 2015's College Campus Protest, against police violence. As you write, more and more people are realizing what feminists have been saying for years, equality makes things better for everyone. If we can get past fears and stereotypes and embrace it. So how much better now is the groundwork laid, is the foundation than it was in the 70s for real feminism put in practice by policy because the work of all the groups and actions you've cited as feminism's recent successes? Is feminism today, grassroots feminism, far more organized and potentially far more powerful than feminism was at its height in the 70s? I mean, that would be hard for me to assess because, you know, I was like three in the 70s. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I, I mean, I do think we have, you know, and, and so much of this is is because of the Internet and, and the sort of, you know, the the nuts and bolts and the, and the tools we have now for connection and for coalition building, um, you know, and, and just sort of the general connectivity that that we have as as a more global society i mean i you know it's different um but i i do think we're in an incredibly fertile place to to really make change at a grassroots level and to influence change at a higher level um because we have these tools for organizations um for coalition building for just getting the word out and and boosting signals um and yeah i i mean i i absolutely see this happening i think the challenge now is to make sure that these um, these groups and these efforts can do what they need to do. And often that means funding. Uh, often that means recognition. Often that means being, to op- being able to operate um, without being harassed, without getting death threats and rape threats. Um, but absolutely, I have so much, so much faith and, uh, and so much excitement about the work that's happening on the ground. I um, I speak at colleges and universities, uh, you know, fairly, fairly often. And um, so it's, it's absolutely nuts to me when I hear older progressives say things like, oh, well, young feminists or young women don't care about feminism anymore. They, that is maybe the wrongest thing that <laughs> I can hear because it's, it's so not true. There's so much action out there. Um, and I, I think that the, you know, the fact that we do have, um, you know, uh, a more robust sense of uh, connection between these groups on the ground and the work that's going on, you know, in a more holistic sense uh, in pop culture, in media, in high-level politics. I think that's really important. I think making those connections and showing that, you know, there is this trajectory and there is this this sense in which um, smaller things drive bigger things uh, is, is really crucial. One last question for you, Andy. We have been speaking with writer, editor, and cultural 
critic Andy Zeisler. She is author of the new book, We Were Feminists Once, From Riot Girl to Cover Girl, The Buying and Selling of a Political Movement. Andy is the co-founder of Bitch Media. Andy, for each and every one of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. So (laughs) President Barack Obama, an African-American, becomes elected president, and finally we're living in a post-racist society. But then what ends up happening is we realize that how little, uh, maybe it's the president uh, himself or uh, any president can do to fight back against racism. And some people within the Black Lives Matter movement who we've had on the show have said that that's one of the reasons that the Black Lives Matter movement came about, that a reinvigorated civil rights and black liberation movement came about is because of the lack of change that happened during a time that we're told was going to be a post-racist society. So now we have the possibility, the potential for Hillary Clinton to be president, and I'm certain we're going to have a post-sexist society. That's going to be fantastic because that'll happen just as quickly as the post-racist society does. So my question from hell for you is, are we going to see possibly a reinvigorated feminist movement because of the lack of change that anybody could do, whether it's Hillary Clinton or anyone, to address sexism in our society. I think so. I absolutely think so. And I've been I've been thinking and talking about this a lot lately because there really is that sort of direct analog uh, between Barack Obama's presidency and and sort of the the sort of glib uh, post racial language that we we all indulged in for a minute there. Um, yeah, I, abs- I absolutely think so. And I think it's already happening in a lot of ways. Um, and, you know, not all these conversations, as, you know, Liza Featherstone and others have pointed out, are really that productive, and they're often somewhat disingenuous. Um, but I do think it's, I do think they're happening, and I do think they're going to happen even more. Um, because as with Barack Obama, if there is a Hillary Clinton presidency, and already now that there's a candidacy, um, we're seeing so much more naked vitriol um, that's being put out there under the guise that, well, now that we have this person in this symbolic position, that must mean everything's better. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I I absolutely think that you sort of see these two extremes of reaction, um, one of which is, you know, well, you know, here we have this woman in power. I guess that means we're done with sexism. Now we can be super explicitly sexist. Um, And then at the other end, you have, well, you know what? Look at how much has not changed. Uh, We need to get on the stick here. Andy, I really appreciate the conversation that we have had today and your book, We Were Feminists Once, From Riot Girl to Cover Girl, The Buying and Selling of a Political Movement, is fantastic. And I want to thank uh, my producer, Alex Jerry, for uh, turning me on to this book. This really is fantastic work, and I truly appreciate you being on the show this week. Well, thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. Thank you, Andy, and take care. You too. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more hell, visit thisishell.com. Welcome back, listeners. It's now that time where we get into the ooey-gooey, decaying worst of rotten history from Rinaldo Migaldi. First item on our rotten history agenda comes to us from October 3rd, 1795. That's uh, 228 years ago for those keeping track. On the Caribbean island of Curacao, 
The Dutch colonial authorities executed a man named Tula, an enslaved plantation worker of African descent who, since August, had led a major uprising on the island. Inspired by the ideals of the French Revolution, and also by the ongoing insurrection led by Toussaint Louverture in Haiti, Tula and his close associates had led growing numbers of enslaved people across Curaçao, from one farm to the next, confronting white plantation owners and seizing their weapons. They also managed to take a few farmers and officials prisoner, while other farmers uh, abandoned their farms and fled to the towns. Tula's rebel force grew to about a thousand, and the Dutch tried to negotiate a compromise, but Tula would accept nothing short of full freedom. So the colonial governor, Johannes de Vere, ordered Dutch troops to take action. They captured and murdered an untold number of slaves in the ensuing bloodshed, and the troops put down the revolt and captured Tula. As a warning to other would-be rebels, they tortured Tula to death, along with a few of his closest associates. Only after that did the Dutch officials throw the enslaved population a bone, allowing them a very limited set of rights. In Curaçao, Tula's revolt is remembered today as the beginning of the long and painful liberation struggle, which led to the abolition of slavery on the island 71 years later in 1863 same year as the emancipation proclamation our next item comes to us from 1963 also on october 3rd 60 years ago this week military forces in honduras staged a violent coup d'etat just 10 days before the scheduled national elections the ousted president ramon vieda morales had pushed for democratic reforms, new labor laws, and improvements in public health, education, and infrastructure. But his agrarian measures, which included the expropriation of foreign-owned agricultural land, had been criticized by business interests in the United States. Powerful right-wing elements in Honduras had not only accused him of communist sympathies, but also opposed the like-minded candidate who was widely expected to be elected to succeed him. After Vieta Morales was overthrown and exiled to Costa Rica, U.S. President John Kennedy condemned the coup and recalled the U.S. ambassador. But 14 months later, Kennedy's successor, Lyndon Johnson, established new ties with the Honduran military government, which would remain in power until 1982. And finally, in early October of 1937, 86 years ago this week, troops from the Dominican Republic engaged in a large-scale killing of Haitian people along the long-disputed border between the two countries that shared the Caribbean island of Hispaniola. The carnage was ordered by U.S.-backed Dominican dictator Rafael Trujillo, who wanted to distract his country's population from their economic ruin after the prices of the Republic's key export, sugar, dropped precipitously in the Great Depression. Trujillo, who was sensitive about his working-class origins, openly admired Adolf Hitler and was so obsessed with race that he wore pancake makeup to lighten his skin. In speeches, he pushed back the idea that the Dominicans who tended to be of mixed European and African descent, 
were biologically and culturally superior to the Haitians, whose ancestry was mainly African. Despite Trujillo's insistence on their differences, the Dominicans and Haitians who lived in the island's interior got along well enough. They mixed freely between the two countries, trading in each other's markets, and speaking both Haitian, Creole, and Spanish. Thousands of Haitians also crossed the border every day to work on Dominican sugar plantations. Since the Haitians were willing to work for lower wages than the Dominicans, Trujillo was able to stir up popular resentment among Dominicans by telling them Haitians were stealing their jobs. On October 2nd, 86 years ago this week, he ordered his army to cross the aptly named Massacre River, which formed part of the border, and carry out mass slaughter in Haiti. Over the next week, some 20,000 men, women, and children were brutally hacked and beaten to death just for being Haitian. Trujillo's troops used machetes, bayonets, clubs, and other crude weapons in a lame attempt to give the appearance of a popular uprising by Dominicans too poor to afford guns. To determine whether someone they captured was Dominican or Haitian, the soldiers would make them pronounce the Spanish word for parsley, perejil. If a person had difficulty rolling the Spanish R, as I just did, they were deemed Haitian and killed. Thus, the carnage became known as the Parsley Massacre. It would later turn out, though, that many of the bilingual victims had been of Dominican ancestry. Trujillo would later go on to order many more atrocities and would continue to receive U.S. backing until he was assassinated by his own generals in 1961. That indeed, listeners, is rotten history, and this is hell. And speaking of hell, it is now time for some of your answers to this week's question from hell. Which is, if you could give Chuck anything for his birthday, what would it be? Uh, let's start with Facebook, see what our listeners on the main Facebook page have been up to. Ray O replies, a completely functional immune system that's getting better by the moment. Tom M replies, many years of good health. Sensing a theme over there on Facebook. Let's check out the other Facebook page. Welcome to the hellhole. Julie M with a witty response replies, a fresh new colon. Colon, not that kind, the digestive organ. I <laughs> uh, love punctuation jokes. Uh, Carrie D replies, health. Nora P replies, happy healthy birthday. Nick E replies, I would give him the power of prognostication so he could know what bad stuff is going to happen so we'd have a head start in preventing and warning people. Bradley R replies, mirrored sunglasses for staring into the abyss so the abyss can't stare back. It's <laughs> good stuff. Uh, keep your responses coming, listeners. Uh, I'll read the rest in the next episode when we will determine whose answer I like best this week because it is solely my choice. I know, life's not fair. I'm Will Ippen, producer at This Is Hell and your temporary host this week. Stay beautiful, listeners, and thank you, as always, for your attention. I'll catch you tomorrow. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. Uh -huh. And my demon tries to knock me down 
and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>